as a computational biologist, it's also super exciting to see that um, like a machine learning or comp computational novelty can actually really revolutionize biology, which I think hasn't been seen to this extent before. And this is very, very fascinating and motivating for me. <laughs> That's Dr. Isabel Bludau, a postdoctoral fellow and computational biologist in the lab of Dr. Matthias Mann at the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry near Munich, Germany. Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. This podcast is with Dr. Bludow and two other scientists at the Max Planck Institute, whom I asked about the role of AI in biology. We talked about AlphaFold and the way it can predict the structure of proteins. We talked about how they view these new developments, about their careers, and about how AlphaFold is influencing their work going forward. Just briefly, before we get to that and to them, about this podcast series. In my reporting, I speak with scientists around the world, and this podcast is a way to share more of what I find out. It takes you into the science. It's about the people doing the science. You can find some of my work, for example, in nature journals. That's where you find studies by working scientists. A number of these journals offer science journalism. These pieces are by science journalists like me. This podcast episode is one of several I'm producing about the Nature Methods Method of the Year 2021, which is protein structure prediction. It was chosen because of AlphaFold, a computational approach from deep mind technologies that has changed the way and the speed at which protein structures can be predicted. You can find a bundle of commentaries on the Nature Method site about how machine learning, especially AlphaFold, is shaping protein structure prediction structural biology more generally, and maybe even biology itself. And I have a story in there, too, in that package for which I spoke to a number of scientists, including the team at the Max Planck Institute. I asked the scientists to introduce themselves, to teach me how to pronounce their names, and to talk about how COVID-19 has been and still is affecting their work. Juan, do you want to go first? You're, you're hardest, I think. <laughs> yeah, I knew, I knew, I knew. Maybe you were a little bit confused with my name. So I actually, this is not my full name. I have another one. So I actually have four names. So my full name is Juan Luis Restrepo Lopez. Uh, but of course, no one called me my full name. People call me Juan. Uh, Juan Restrepo would be like my, my full name, uh, like what people would normally use. Right. And so when your mother said, come to the table and eat, it wasn't Juan Restrepo at all the other names, right? It was, uh, I see. Yeah, it was just Juan. Juan. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, cool. I'll, I'll try, but I don't have that nice R that you have. Just call me Juan. It's fine. Juan is fine. Okay. Cool. <laughs> My name is very easy. It's Isabel Brudau. Very straightforward, <laughs> I think. Isabel Bludow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm a postdoctoral fellow in uh, working in the, as a bioinformatician in the lab of Matthias Mann. And the general focus of uh, our department is uh, proteomics, uh, where the goal is to identify and quantify all of the proteins in a given biological sample. And I'm working in the computational team. Um, so we develop software for analyzing large-scale proteomics experiments, and this ranges from raw data processing all the way to um, systematic analyses of biological patterns from a systems biology perspective. So since I work full-time on the computer, um, I could fairly easily work from home during <laughs> the COVID crisis. Um, fairly easily being said that this means uh, I can do in theory, all my work, um, but uh, like the biggest challenge for me was to really keep up the enthusiasm over an extended period of time, because really the interaction with the, the other colleagues and like everything that makes science a lot of fun <laughs> was uh, like limited down to a yeah minimum, I would say. And I'm very happy that we can now go back to the lab more often. Uh, and my name is Bastian Breuning. Um, it's like the name, you know, in English, I think you would say Sebastian, but just without the S-E at the beginning. Got it. Bastian Breuning. And you have yes. a bit of an echo going on. Oh, it's I do? Uh, so uh, let me just shift uh, real quick. I can, there's another room available that I can go to. 
Okay, tick-tock, tick-tock. Just showing the passage of time in a podcast here as Bastian switches rooms. Okay, he's ready and there's no more echo. So, uh, hi, my name is Bastian Bräuning uh, and I'm a postdoc and project group leader in the department of Brenda Schulman at the Max Planck Institute for Biochemistry. I'm originally from Munich and have been at the Institute for about three years now. Um, our department studies the protein machineries inside the cell that recognize and target proteins for degradation. To this end, we assemble them um, inside the test tube and study their reactions. We also determine structural snapshots of these protein complexes in action using mainly cryo-EM. And um, as for COVID, so I'm a, I would say a pure experimental um, scientist. So I really have to be at the bench to do my work. And during, um, you know, the first and second lockdowns that we had in Germany, um, I, you know, for at least a year, I had uh, limited access to the lab and to the bench. So uh, it was difficult and I had to um, arrange myself with colleagues um, very well, uh, try to be very organized about having access to the lab and in a limited amount, but still be productive in the time. Then we circled back to Juan Restrepo. When I spoke with him, he had recently finished his master's degree at Technical University of Munich. Here, he talks about the impact of COVID on his work. So, yeah, my name is Juan Restrepo. I'm originally Colombian. My background is in physics. I started my bachelor in theoretical physics and then moved to applied physics. I did my master here in Munich in that uh, topic, in the TUM. Uh, that's where I started working in uh, data science applied to uh, biomedical data science. And then I met uh, Jürgen Cox. I'm working in his lab now. I wrote my master thesis with him in uh, machine learning applied to DIA, data independent analysis in mass spec data. Um, after we, uh, after I finished my master, I joined his lab as a PhD student, where I'm uh, currently developing more uh, in my master project and also other projects also related with machine learning uh, and its connection with uh, biomedical data science, in particular mass spec data. I uh, so that's for my uh, like state of my uh, the current stuff of my career. And regarding COVID, uh, so it's, it was more or less similar to Isabel. So I'm also a computational scientist. So, I mean, like I still had all the tools I needed to work from home, but the, the biggest challenges were that you were isolated from colleagues. So it was hard to have uh, discussions. Also the PI was in his office or at his place. So it was also a little bit harder to get some guidance, especially during my master thesis. But somehow it worked out and now we are back on the lab. And uh, yeah, I mean, as Isabel says, now it's more fun again. And now like we can really connect with people again. Next one, Restrepo talked about the science that captivates his interest and Bastian Breuning and Isabel Bludau riff on that from their perspectives. They all come from different subspecialties within science. So it's fun to hear the spectrum of their views. Well, Okay, it's fun for me. You decide if you think so. And I guess in my case, I see myself as an applied physicist um, working on biomedical data science. Um, I mean, for me, it's more about the, the, the problem, honestly. I mean, I, it's like as, as a physicist, as a mathematician, I, I don't know, like even as a computer scientist, you can just tackle different problems during your career. And I guess at the end, sometimes they, are, they add up to something because you have so many, like, you took so many paths, let's say. Uh, for me, it's more like if there is an interesting problem, then I will just, and I mean, and I, I have the resources and I have the time to do it, and then I will just do it if I can. So I actually, the first project I did was in genetics. In, 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 bi in computational biology was in genetics. And then I started doing proteomics, uh, all from the computational perspective. And I think, of course, they are complementary, but I guess for me, like in my background, also the methods are complementary somehow. So like what they, what they aim to are complementary, but then the methods themselves are complementary because yeah, I mean, in, in one of them, you, you can, you have more data. 
in the other one, so I mean, you can uh, how do you call it? a PCR like clonate? You can clone, clonate, clonate. You can clone your 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 molecules and then like expand it and pl amplify them. And in the other one, you can't, you can't. So you have to do some tricks because you can't like replicate your data. So all of those things kind of allow you to see a bigger picture, let's say. I asked the scientists about the tasks they do in their studies and about how they define themselves. Here's Isabel Bludo and Bastian Breuning. Isabel Bludo doesn't like labels. Very difficult to put a label on it. <laughs> Um, uh, I would say, like, I'm a computational biologist, um, and I I specialized in like no, well, I studied molecular biotechnology actually, and focused on bioinformatics fairly early in my studies. And um, my big goal, kind of during the work that I've been doing throughout my like uh, bachelor, master's, PhD, and now my postdoc, has always been to like find cool biological questions that can be solved computationally or that um, like ranging from like method development um, to like data analysis to answer some challenging cool questions. And usually for me, this has been in context of systems biology. So I first worked in genomics and now I focus during my PhD and postdoc in proteomics. Um, but in general, I, I think like computational biology or bioinformatics is like the more uh, appropriate term if you want to nail it down. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I was trained throughout my PhD and, you know, a good part of my postdoc as a structural biologist. But really, um, you know, since my, since my time here at the Institute, which is very interdisciplinary, um, and also through collaboration outside of the Institute, I've more and more, you know, I more and more see the, the importance of doing um, you know, cell biology, biochemistry, together with structural biology. So actually right now, ever, you know, since, you know, a few months, or, you know, it, it almost coincides with when AlphaFold came out, funny enough, but I've been, you know, we're, we're joking in the lab that actually I'm not doing any, or, you know, barely any structural biology these days. Um, I'm going down some other um, paths, um, you know, cell biology is something I do a lot now. And it's great to learn this sort of, I wasn't trained as a cell biologist, but, you know, um, I, I, I realized that it's, it's, it's very important and I have a lot of fun with it. So I guess I'm, I'm lucky that, you know, within my postdoc, I'm, I'm, I have the freedom to explore other fields, methods. Um, and I hope that this will benefit me after my postdoc to um, be able to just have a more, um, you know, comprehensive um, outlook and perspective on, on doing um, protein science um, as a whole. AlphaFold is making waves with its computational approach. It uses machine learning that has been trained on the data sets in the protein data bank, the PDB. And there are other platforms that also handle protein prediction with machine learning, such as RosettaFold. The Max Planck scientists gave their first impressions of AlphaFold and explained when they first heard about it. For some, that was when AlphaFold 2 did really well at the Critical Assessment of Protein Structure Prediction, CASP. That's a competition in which scientists test how well their methods do in computationally predicting protein structures. DeepMind Technologies developed AlphaFold. DeepMind is a company that was bought by Google. The AlphaFold team has begun generating protein structures that are filling up, in a rather big, if not to say massive way, a database called the European Bioinformatics AlphaFold Protein Structure Database. And there was a paper that presented most of the human proteome predicted by AlphaFold. Here's Bastian Breuning about his first impressions of AlphaFold. I'm a structural biologist, so determining structures of um, proteins and their complexes is really what I do. And um, I have to be honest, I was, I was not so aware of the, of the, of the AlphaFold before the database came online, to be honest. Uh, maybe much less aware than maybe some others now here in the podcast. But um, yeah, I mean, my, my, I, when, when the database came online, I, I looked through it and I looked at uh, proteins that we were interested in. And I think I was just really very surprised at how well it was predicting even small details of protein structures and conformations. 
so um, at that point, I was, um, yeah, I was, I think for at least a week, I was just quite, um, I was really struck by it. Um, I, I spent a lot of time on, on the database. I spent a lot of time looking at things that I'm interested in now, things I used to be interested in. And yeah, I was just blown away by how much it was getting right, basically. Isabel Bludow talks about how she first heard about AlphaFold. And yes, of course, scientists take in social media. Basically, I just first read about AlphaFold actually on Twitter, I think. And um, I noticed that a lot of people got extremely excited. And I first really couldn't believe how good the results were. And But I, then I have to say that the real impact is maybe similar to Bastian. Um, that AlphaFold had on my personal work happened uh, when EBI in collaboration with DeepMind published the structures of all human proteins. And this suddenly expanded the avail available structures um, or structural information from a few thousand to proteins to basically the entire proteome. And this information can now be easily integrated into any systems biology analysis that I do. So. Um, since I'm doing a lot of these kind of global analyses of patterns in proteomics data, um, this is super interesting because we can now complement the information about the presence and quantity of proteins with the structural information. And this uh, is, of course, enabling us to draw a more complete picture. And um, this is, for me, probably the most exciting part of it. And of course, as a computational biologist, it's also super exciting to see that um, like a machine learning or comp computational novelty can actually really revolutionize biology, which I think hasn't been seen to this extent before. And this is very, very fascinating and motivating for me. <laughs> I wondered if Juan Restrepo, as a computer scientist and physicist, had maybe heard about AlphaFold earlier than most. <laughs> well, I didn't know about it all along, of course. But I, the first time I heard about AlphaFold 2 was in a course I was taking at the university called Protein Prediction, actually, where the um, teaching assistants were actually uh, discussing a model they had for predicting a structure based on some yeah, machine fancy machine learning algorithms. And they were like, there is this super cool model that just came out that is uh, basically uh, the best we can do so far and is like really revolutionizing uh, the way um, people is doing machine learning in computational biology. There are, the paper is still not out, but the results look really cool. And this is so, probably AlphaFold yeah. 1 then, right? Maybe? AlphaFold 2, I finished oh, my, Alpha uh, Fold yeah, ah. AlphaFold 2, yeah, exactly. I, I just finished my master like a, a few months ago. So, <laughs> so that's why, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, Congratulations. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So after that, I started like looking, looking uh, or going into it, like seeing which kind of information there was available. There wasn't much in the moment. Uh, there was only a blog post by DeepMind. And there was already the paper of AlphaFold one out. So I, I read that, I saw what they were doing. I saw they also won the CASP 13. And I was, I thought it was pretty cool what they were doing because I mean, they were really like solving, like using machine learning for solving really important problems that not even the physics-based models could address in a meaningful way. So I thought it was really, really interesting that uh, yeah, I mean, you could, like, only from the data extract a different way of uh, tackling the problem, let's say, that there was a different way of tackling the problem. AlphaFold trained on the experimentally determined protein structures in the Protein Data Bank, the PDB. And I have a separate podcast in which I talk with Dr. Helen Berman, a co-founder of the PDB and current co-architect of the next chapter of the PDB. She shares a little bit about what the next chapter of the PDB will look like. For now, there is the PDB and there is the EBI AlphaFold Protein Structure Database. This duality is likely not going to remain. It's all hush-hush about what exactly will unfold. But she did say a few things in that podcast, so please tune in to that if you have a chance. Here, I'm just going to insert one passage about how the PDB got its start. Here's Helen Berman, who mentions a crystallographer by the name of Walter Hamilton. 
But remember, the PDB was started by postdocs and trainees and graduate students. That's who that's who was agitating for it way back. About, I wasn't the only, there were a few of us back then in the 60s. We were very young. We talked a lot. We were so excited by looking at the structures and we thought, you know, what can we do with all this? And, and I remember we had these meetings and we wrote petitions and we did all kinds of things to see if we could get the data out there. We were the ones, it was the kids who did it. And then we had to convince this elderly guy, you know, the 40 year old guy, we knew that somebody important had to like make it happen, that we couldn't make it happen, but we had to convince him to do it. And we did. But it was all the, the people, the initial people involved were all very young. The people who were involved among the many people, but it was um, Gerson Cohn, unfortunately, passed away. Edgar Meyer passed away. Uh, uh, myself um, were people who were very active and collaborated, you know, sort of, and we had to do it all by snail mail. There was no email. And we, we would have these meetings about how do we make this happen? And we were all very young people just beginning in our careers. And then we went to this Cold Spring Harbor meeting in 1971 and Walter had driven down from Brookhaven and we, we kind of assaulted him and said, you know, we really need someone to do this. And we knew we had enough sense to know that on our own, we couldn't do it. We needed somebody who had credentials. We were telling, we were writing letters and telling people what we thought had to happen. And, you know, these, the other, I think Edgar and, uh, Edgar and um, Gerson were both like beginning in their independent careers or one of them might've been a postdoc or research associate when this all began. I met Edgar when he was a, a postdoc. Um, so we were young and I was a student. So um, that's how things really happen. And then we had the, as they say in my language, the chutzpah to go and say, this is what should happen. And uh, that's what happened. Back to the junior scientists at the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry. Here they talk about what they would like to see in data resources that will emerge and how they will use them. I would say generally, it's always nice if you have um, one platform where you can get the most information like possible, um, like in a combined way, um, because generally like this, like I'm struggling with this a lot because I'm usually like going to different places and trying to integrate data from different databases. And um, it's it's a lot of pain uh, also when different um different institutes or databases use different formats and everyone has their like different conventions for how to um, uh, like supply the information. I think already now, like, I mean, the alpha fold structures are basically in the same format as the common PDB structure. So this is already nice. Um, but generally I think uh, like having things on a combined shared platform is usually beneficial uh, from my perspective. Yeah, I, th I think I would also agree, like, I'm, you know, there's, I mean, to some extent, um, AlphaFold and PDB data has been already combined. Uh, for instance, in the Uniprot, which is really a go-to website, if you want to check sequence, if you want to check proteins and related organisms, if you go to one of these um, protein sites, you will find these days for a lot of things that there's, the, you know, the available, available PDB structures, as well as AlphaFold models, you know, available. You can, it's from one website, essentially. I have just some uh, short comment, because I don't really know a lot about biological databases, honestly. My, my projects are like, after getting the data, I don't have much, that, that much information about like, what would be an ideal database or like, I mean, I'm not the person who will go to different databases and like will fetch all the data. In one project that I'm using AlphaFold, we are kind of, uh, don't, we downloaded the database that they have available. And we had a problem because not all the proteins, not all the proteins were there. So we, we tried to like look where else there were. And, we, and, and then we found the, like the compatibility problem, right? Like you, you don't know always have all the resources in one place. And that's of course very painful and that's not ideal. And then you, have to spend a lot of time just trying to like, yeah, match oh. everything. 
One issue that has come up in my interviews is confidence. What does it take for users of these protein structure models to have confidence in them? Maybe one comment from my side directly. So uh, AlphaFold, um, like regarding the AlphaFold quality, it actually pro- uh, provides a per residue uh, quality score. Yeah. So um, each individual amino acid has a confidence metric to it. And uh, this gives you some information about how certain uh, you are that the amino acid is actually in the correct position. And um, for like in, in general, in terms of like, a confidence on, on protein structures. Um, like looking at the whole thing from a systems biology perspective, um, I'm more happy that there are like less certain structures for a lot of proteins than super high confidence ones for very um, like, like a smaller subset. And uh, like one specific interest of mine, for example, are post-translation modifications which are like small chemical, like let's say decorations on the protein. And um, and these are often on uh, unstructured regions on the protein. And it's still very good to know uh, where they are approximately on the three-dimensional space. (laughs) Like so um, not only knowing where they are, but really uh, like in the one-dimensional sequence, but in 3D. And um, if, if you look in the PDB structures there are, and they are often not covered. And, uh, and this is now super useful to have also these lower confidence regions available. And um, so, so I'm actually very happy that uh, the information for the low confidence regions is provided in AlphaFold. Just a small comment on this. I mean, uh, structural biologists, when, you know, when we build models typically, um, we, we've always used structure prediction to help us model. Um, you know, you, when, when, you're, when you're building a model, uh, residue by residue, um, you will rarely do this without having, um, you know, in front of you, um, secondary structure predictions of, pro- of that protein. You know, there, there's a lot of prediction that exists even before AlphaFold. Um, and, you know, everyone knows, or everyone in structural who works with, with, with this knows that it's never very, con- you know, entirely confident or re- some regions are more confident than others, but it's very useful data to have. Um, and you, you're never quite entirely in the dark, even when you're building something from scratch. So um, I think that people, people know how to deal with confidence or low confidence um, um, when they need to. I asked Bastian Breuning and Juan Restrepo a bit more about these varying confidence levels of protein regions. So right, so this becomes um, important, I think, in, along different parts of, of the project of a of a structural biology or bio- biochemistry project. So when you're actually building the model, um, and let's say you have an electron microscopy map, uh, the peripheries of this map will be of, of, of lower resolution usually, and modeling becomes less confident or accurate in those regions. And you have a core of this of this protein or complex where the data is better and you can model with more confidence. This is important for building the model and you, you want to deposit a model that is closest, you know, you, you don't want to, let's say you don't want to model or let's say good practice would be to not model maybe parts of the, of, of the structure that are just have low confidence data to back them up. But for, um, but, but, you know, the lack of, 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 of confidence or the lack of resolution in, in one part of the model can be a very good source um, to follow up, um, you know, either to generate hypotheses, this might be a more flexible or dynamic dynamic domain. And these regions can also be targeted for follow-up experiments biochemically, um, because, you know, as a mentor of mine said, often the most dynamic and least confident and most movable parts are the most interesting parts. That's where the action happens. Um, so it's not a positive or negative thing, really, um, whether something is, is low or high confidence, but it's a matter of how you interpret it, how, what you use this kind of data for, even the low confidence ones. I think that's what's important. Yeah, I think that their, their approach, uh, which, the, which they follow to actually come out with this confidence value that is called the PLDDT, the confidence value is called the PLDDT, their, their approach they follow is really interesting because what they did, so let's remember that this is actually a prediction for every atom at the scale of nanometers. So this is extremely accurate. So what they did was to, they didn't predict a specific 
um, let's say, position for the atom, but they actually predicted a probability distribution that uh, the atom will be in a specific place. So according to how, uh, let's say, wide or narrow the probability distribution is, they will see how confident the model itself thinks that the, the prediction is correct, which is very useful because it's actually representing how spread the confidence of the machine learning algorithm is. Uh, the, and how do I see that integrated in like a, a standard machine learning workflow or a standard way of solving a problem or like in my specific projects? I think it's extremely important because one of the things you never you are never sure is if you're doing everything correct. So as as as, as a as a scientist, right? You you try something out, you see the results, you know that it makes sense. So you think you are correct, but you, you cannot like you, you cannot be, never be one hundred percent sure. So to have as many tests as possible for a specific problem is of course something good, and I think that to build in in the model is something uh, which will take as a as a as a lesson and implement it ourselves as much as we can. Um, for example, uh, if you're if you like using this confidence value. You could like choose which points are better for you to choose for training. So if you want to train a new algorithm, if you want to include, as you say, something in max quant, then what we will do is only to take the regions where the confidence value is larger than 90. That is what they say. Larger than 90 for them is almost sure that is that is correct. So that, those are the like those are the uh, points or the regions we will take for training. So between 70 and 90 will be something uh, acceptable for prediction, but not for training. So what like this confidence value actually allows us to differentiate uh, between uh, something relatively good at something they think is right, and they have good reasons to think is right, which is, of course, extremely useful. Incorporating confidence levels and metrics will be important in many types of protein-based studies. Even when there are lower confidence levels about parts of a structure, they are helpful. Here's Juan Restrepo and Isabel Bludau. It's oh. essential, right? Essential. So, yeah. so I, I would second that. So like, um, the most important thing is that you do have this information. So I think um, like having the full structure, but not knowing exactly like the confidence for each of the amino acids or even like on an atom resolution um, is, is um, would be not so great, but it, since th this information is available, uh, this really provides us a lot of um, grounds to also like base our analyses um, like on considerations that take the confidence into account. How does AlphaFold do what it does computationally? AlphaFold was developed by DeepMind Technologies, a company that Google bought in 2014. So DeepMind is part of Alphabet. That gave AlphaFold developers access to Google Compute resources, which is something people in academia do not have. And some of my interviewees discussed whether academia would have achieved this result of a fast protein structure prediction method on their own. Google uses TPUs, not GPUs. And that is what DeepMind had access to, TPUs. So first of all, they have great hardware. Like they have all the resources in the world. So you can run even the models. You don't think they will go, they will converge. You can run any type of models. You can go crazy and run 200,000 experiments because you have unlimited resources. So that's, of course, something very nice and something academic uh, people in academia doesn't have. Um, no one can answer if like academia would have done the same with such a hardware. But what is for sure is that um, AlphaFold also use ideas that were currently there already. Some of the ideas were there already. So at the beginning, they, they do something called the multiple sequence ana analysis and the, that came from academia. They also uh, they use transformers that the, the much the, the, like the core of the machine learning algorithm of this of this method is transformer and that was developed by Google as well and that was training on a GP on a GPU. So AlphaFold two was inconceivable without a without that hardware for sure. 
AlphaFold One might be conceivable without that hardware because the, archi the architecture was much simpler. Uh, I guess that would be something to note. Uh, they they kind of got to AlphaFold One up to a place where they okay they uh, they improved over the other um, teams, but they didn't really solve the problem. But to really solve the problem, they had to go very deep. And for going that deep, they needed a very fancy model with very fancy hardware that not everyone has. Another issue that has come up in my conversations is the degree to which AlphaFold might elevate the role of structural biology. To some in biology, though, proteins are just blobs, blobs that stick to other blobs. Here's Bastian Breuning and then Isabel Bludau on this aspect. So I think, you know, if, if, you, if you go back and, and think about all the important, um, you know, when, when I was in high school and I was in, in biology class, um, you know, that everything was, was, was drawn on the board as, as blobs, um, you know, ribosomes, really the basic process of, of, of life, you know, just because you draw them as blobs or maybe teach them um, as blobs to some extent, it doesn't take away from, from how important this is. So I think, you know, it depends on what, what, what you need all this extreme resolution for when a lot of things, especially in teaching and for bringing people to science, um, are, are, are really well explained and demonstrated by, you know, quote, blobs. Um, I, don't think it, I don't think it has to be a bad term, um, depending on, on, on what you want to get across or, or what process you want to teach. So um, and that's my personal um, take on this. I fully agree with Bastian. Depends on what you want to communicate. And uh, a blob might be nice for some aspects, and um, but totally miss the point in other, um, in other directions. So. AlphaFold is going to influence ongoing and future science in many ways. And there are yet still many unanswered questions about proteins that AlphaFold does not have an answer for. The scientists talk about what they are keen on understanding about proteins. One uh, very general big challenge in proteomics, or I think basically of any kind of biomedical research in general, is uh, that we often detect um, a lot of interesting changes, um, like for example, in terms of protein abundance or the um, presence or absence of specific post-translation modifications. Um, if we look at comparisons, for example, between healthy people and um, patients with a certain disease. But then the question is, um, to identify which of these uh, tons of observed changes actually have any functional impact. And um, for example, it's known that post-translational modifications are relevant for the formation of protein-protein interactions, um, but for this, they of course need to be somehow available on the um, accessible area of the protein. And uh, now basically with AlphaFold there, um, this makes a lot of things more easy because we can investigate where are our modifications and the follow-up steps. So I think there, uh, like I guess most of you have seen, there there's already this alpha fold multimer um, extension available as a preprint, um, and uh, with this you can investigate protein complex for, uh, formation and structure. And uh, this, of course, now opens up a lot of opportunities for us to uh, really. Uh, like in the proteomics field, look at uh, which of the targets or hits that we get um, are most likely to be like functionally relevant and to narrow down our hits. And this will be, of course, um, extremely relevant uh, for any kind of applied research. Also, if we want to go to like more clinical applications, etc. So maybe from like this, this would be one of these general points, right? So I think uh, when AlphaFold two first came out, everyone was like, okay, now maybe protein complexes will come like next, but next probably being next year, but next was in a couple of months. And um, uh, now it's of course super exciting what comes next. So I think like small molecule binding will have a huge impact if you, if you can do this um, like even better than what's possible right now. And this will facilitate drug screens immensely. Um, but then also what you mentioned already, um, uh, it's like protein modeling protein dynamics, because this is, of course, again, another interesting aspect to um, actually see, okay, which proteins are likely to have multiple conformations. And I think Bastian already mentioned that 
the regions that are currently predicted less confident might be the most interesting ones because they are actually doing um, like interesting biological things. And then uh, finally, again, like going back to the post-translation modifications and different alternative proteoforms that a protein can have. So um, this, uh, I, I was always like uh, working with this also during my PhD. And um, uh, if like uh, future models can really predict the impact of specific modifications or like truncated protein versions on their structure, this will really facilitate our understanding of um, whether these modifications have any impact on function, which I think uh, are all like super interesting avenues. And I, like this is probably one thing that I find most fascinating about AlphaFold in general, that this really not, not, not only uh, like solves a big challenge <laughs> and that was there in the field, but it also just opens up even more um, like avenues that uh, have a massive impact themselves. Yeah, I have, I have maybe, um, I, I wanna comment on uh, through, through my, through the work that I did myself here in the lab. Um, so I was, you know, about a year ago, I was um, working on solving the structure of a, of a um, complex, a protein complex in the cell that has nine subunits and that assists other proteins in entering the membranes instead of cells. So it's, you know, if you want it, it's, a, it's a, it, it basically yeah, it helps other proteins um, fold inside membranes. And oh, human, um, human or other organism? It was, it was a human um, structure that I myself was working on. And had I had AlphaFold back then, I think assembling, putting together the individual proteins of this complex would have been much easier for sure. It would have cut down the work um, you know, it took me something like six months. It would have for sure cut it down to a month or less. But I think what we really learned from this study was um, as gratifying as it is to look at the finished structure of the complex, it's still, you, you, you still really don't know what parts of the protein are, are doing, um, how they work together in doing their biological function. So, you know, I think even if we had, even if we had AlphaFold back then, um, this would have been, you know, this was, this would have been work that we would still have to do. And, you know, and, and in the end, we, we had to still dig deep after we got the structure, we had to dig very deep to, 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 to sort of find dynamics in our data. Um, and on top of that, uh, you know, follow up with, with a lot of biochemistry mutagenesis on our complex to, to really bring the structure to life and to really start to see functionalities on the structure, which AlphaFold can can replace um, at this point, even even if AlphaFold back then could have predicted protein-protein interfaces or interactions, and even if AlphaFold would have built the whole structure by itself, um, really the, the our story that we published um, could not have been published without everything else um, that came with with the structural biology, the biochemistry, the you know um, all of it. So. Um, that was just one comment, I guess. Maybe I could comment from uh, another perspective. So I don't have the background to comment on like how will it affect that biology, biochemistry, system biology. But like from the machine learning point of view, I think this is arguably the most important um, machine learning model of the decade. So it actually solved a 50-year-old problem. And uh, it's actually very similar to how the field, so how the first wave um, of machine learning started 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, it actually started when uh, AlexNet was published. Uh, they actually uh, won the image processing competition called ImageNet, and they outperformed their, their other competitors by a lot. So people kind of started to, to ask themselves, hey, uh, what is this new technology? What, what can it do for us? And uh, it's very similar to what is happening now. So this solved a 50-year-old problem, this new architecture solved a 50-year-old problem that is actually uh, not at all trivial to solve, of course. So they will only like open many doors, right? Yeah. And then we'll even bring more people uh, into, into the community and we like increase the awareness and increase the... Um, 
like let's say the energy and the resources that are going to the field because it, it already proved that it can uh, tackle real world problems that cannot be solved otherwise. In 2017, Google Brain scientists presented at the Conference on Neural Information Processing Systems, and they published their approach in a paper called Attention is All You Need. Attention plays a role in the big jump that AlphaFold 2 took at CASP 14. Yeah, so this is exactly what they use. So attention is all you is, is all you need was the paper where Google actually introduced transformers, and transformers are the core of uh, the AlphaFold 2 model. So in AlphaFold 1, they use convolutional neural networks. And in AlphaFold 2, they got rid of the CNNs and included transformers. And uh, this this was not like the idea of of DeepMind. So transformers are actually revolutionizing. uh, they, they, they They come from natural language processing, but now they started to go to other fields. In, in machine learning, and this is one of the of the of, of the of the applications of it. So it's they are particularly interesting because they can detect long correlations. So like, okay, maybe this is too technical, but when when you wanna when you have when when you are processing a sequence, you normally do a recursive neural neural network. And, and then you sort of unroll the sequence and then process it somehow. And then with this new architecture, you can process the whole sequence in parallel. And because you are processing it in parallel, one, like you, you get information from left and right. So you, you are actually seeing the whole sequence every time. So that allows the model to actually figure out long-term, long-term dependencies very well. And this is what happened in proteins because protein, proteins fold. So two residues, two amino acids that are very far away in sequence, when they fall, they are actually very close. So you need to like somehow introduce this to the model. And the, the best model to do that is a transformer and was introduced in that paper, you say. AlphaFold, some say, might have a negative effect on some scientific fields and specialties. And one of those areas is X-ray crystallography, which has been an important way to experimentally determine protein structures. Juan Restrepo and Bastian Breuning have some comments on that. You know, I was honestly thinking maybe Bastian, I don't know if Bastian would like to do it. It's just a question because Bastian actually did crystallography for his PhD. And this is something that, so AlphaFold actually sort of is built on crystallography data, let's say. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and something, and, and it's solving like what, what, what took a crystallographer one year to solve or two years to solve, actually AlphaFold can solve it now in, I don't know, a few hours. So I, I guess maybe Bastian would be interested in explaining how was it obtained before the data and like why is this important? I don't know if that's important at all, right? It's just <laughs> um yeah, I mean, especially for crystallography. I, I mean, I I did my PhD in um in protein crystallography. I dabbled a bit in cryoEM with uh, through a collaboration. And um ever since I was a postdoc um after that. I've really started to um, appreciate how enabling cryoEM was for structural biology coming as a crystallographer. And um, the next thing, of course, is, is, is now AlphaFold. And I, I think I see around me in, in my own, uh, you know, in my own lab or, or, or on others on Twitter, how um, AlphaFold is now also helping um, efforts in cryoelectron tomography, for instance, which is also a next big thing, I think, in, the, in structural biology. Um, which, which typically, on average, produces lower confidence data than single particle cryoEM, but because we have better and better predictions for for parts of bigger complexes, um, this will really enable cryo electron tomography to, um, you know, just like so. So what I'm saying is sort of I've I've gone through from one revolution to the next through you know between my PhD and my postdoc. It's an interesting time to be in, um, and I think. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, as as big of a surprise and maybe of, of of a shock it was to to structural biologists. I think once that's settled, um, and you, you really start looking at the opportunities it gives to you, um, it becomes less, you know, less worrying or, or something. It's um, there's still st- still so much to be done, and you know, n- not one method or one revolution is going to 
um, sold everything. So I think if you keep this keep this in mind, doing in structural biology, I don't think you have to be um, super worried. And you know, frankly, I think you you were talking about ligands before, Juan. I think you know solving accurate structures of proteins bound to ligands, small ligands, is still to a large extent. Um, 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 uh, still to a large extent requires crystallographic data because um, crystallography now at the modern synchrotrons, it becomes a very high throughput method to screen ligands in a way that CryoEM can't deliver yet. So, you know, these are technologies that are not going away. Um, uh, on, on, the, on the contrary, I mean, they're important. It's just getting even more clear in, in this time. Yeah, I think just, just very recently, even today or yesterday, you saw on Twitter, um, you know, better and better tomography data, cryo-ET data on, on uh, the nuclear pore complex, which is really, really the largest protein complex in the cell. Um, you know, this is really the realm of tomography. And because it has so many subunits, um, and, you know, luckily one knows the subunits uh, mostly to the, to the large to largest extent. So having something like AlphaFold in this instance is incredible because you can take a pretty accurate model of a part and fit it into your um, your map and do this really in the context of the largest complex there is in the cell. So um, I think cryo-ET people are very grateful for AlphaFold, um, I would think. Uh, um, you know, back, there, there, back then there was a few years ago, there were there were papers on, on the nuclear pore complex. And it was really, if you look at these papers, which are really tour de force um, studies of of crystallography, actually, where just individual parts of this pore complex have been determined by crystallography. And now, you know, a few years later, you have a method in cryo-ET where you can really now start, start plopping in these, these um, structures. So I don't know, like it's everything, you know, everything has helped along the way to reach this point um, today. So really there's room for every method, really. There has to be. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's episode was with scientists at the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry near Munich, Germany. I spoke with Dr. Isabel Bludau, a postdoctoral fellow and computational biologist in the lab of Dr. Matthias Mann. Another person in this podcast was Dr. Bastian Breuning, a postdoctoral fellow and project group leader in the department of Brenda Schulman, and Juan Restrepo, a PhD student in the lab of Dr. Jürgen Cox. And I'd like to give a shout out here to Dr. Christiana Mensfeld at the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry, who helped me find these participants. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry did not pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.